Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Gregory William Trotterman. Gregory was present to greet the deputation of Muscovite merchants and diplomats who arrived in Sweden in 1633. He received a lot of sable fur coats for his troubles. Good for you, Gregory. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 61 of the 30 Years' War. So, in the last episode, we reached something of a watershed moment. The Battle of Nordlingen in 1634 accelerated the timetable of Cardinal Richelieu and compelled him to involve France in the morass of conflicts which made up the Thirty Years' War. The retreat of Swedish forces to Pomerania and the Rhine and the conclusion of the Peace of Prague in late May 1635 transformed the strategic situation in Germany and it meant, in the first place, the alienation of Sweden from its old German allies, particularly the Saxon and Brandenburg electors. Yet, as we'll recall, the French declaration of war in mid-May 1635 was made on Spain, and so far, not the Emperor, though there was a common acceptance in Paris that the two fronts would not be separate for long. French forces would soon be in play, to aid the Dutch against Spain and the Swedes against the Emperor, but before they did so, we need to spend some more time placing the events of 1635 into context, and we can do this by considering the events which preceded this eventful summer. For Sweden, there was another danger looming on the horizon. No, not the problem of its surrounded forces in Germany, but the possibility of a new war with Poland, and unfortunately for Axel Oxenstierna, his Russian insurance policy had not paid off in this regard. Just so you're reminded of what this insurance policy was, basically the Swedish Chancellor had tried to engineer the Russians attacking the Poles in the rear, while the Poles and Swedes had a truce. Unfortunately, the Poles defeated the Russians, so there wasn't much use in that policy, and now the truce was due to expire, and the somewhat enraged Poles were ready for a spot of revenge. Examining the interconnected nature of events in episodes like these reminds us that there was far more to the story of the Thirty Years' War than the traditional narrative of the two armed camps facing down one another. As both sides looked for advantages, these were often secured in distant friends that might put pressure on other distant foes to prevent the resumption of old conflicts. 
the struggles which constituted the Thirty Years' War were beginning to congeal, and the pleas of neutrality were becoming as difficult within the system of states as it had already become for the average German citizen or ruler. Before we start, though, I do want to address the audio. Some of you guys have commented. At the moment, things are a little bit in flux because I'm still trying to fix up that office that I've been working on for a while, so you might notice a little bit of an echo. I've tried to reduce it as best as I can, maybe sitting further back from the microphone or closer to the microphone. I'm actually in a very small room, but there you go. These things aren't always as simple as they seem, and it seems like I kind of took for granted my old setup, which was really just me sitting in a room that was a little bit bigger than this one. But hopefully it doesn't take you too much out of the moment. It should at least be encouraging to those of you who might be thinking of starting your own history podcast, because I'm sure a few people exist, that even someone like me who's been doing it for 10 years can still struggle with audio from time to time. But we'll keep working on it, and hopefully it doesn't take you too much out of the moment. Oh, and speaking of doing this for 10 years, make sure you check those anniversary episodes out if you haven't already, because they've been pretty well received, and if you're interested in seeing what my 10 favourite series were, or my 10 favourite historical figures, or my 10 favourite guests I've had on this show, or if you'd just like to know where this podcast fits in with my life and career and professional development, etc, etc, make sure to check those out. You might not think I need to tell you because they're right there in the feed, but sometimes people ask me when X episodes come out, and I'm like, it's already there. So there you go. (laughs) Anyway, let's start this now. Without any further ado then, I'll now take you to an unlikely scene, that of a travelling Russian embassy to Sweden in spring 1633. Are the Polish crown prince Vladislav and his brothers talking with the emperors at the present time? And if so, what about? And will the emperor help crown prince Vladislav and his brothers against Muscovy in some way? And if so, how? With men or with money? And the ambassadors are to discover whether other states are having fresh discussions with the Polish crown prince and his brothers. And if so, what about? And do any of these states want to help the Poles against Muscovy? And if so, how do they mean to help? with men or with money. This anxious set of questions was formulated as a a kind of guidebook for the group of Russian agents sent on a great embassy to Sweden in spring 1633. But really, this list of questions could just as easily be posed by contemporaries to any of the belligerents within the Thirty Years' War. At the best of times, it was often difficult to get a clear, full picture of the inclinations of particular actors or to gauge the true intentions of one's allies. And Axel Oxenstierna knew all too well about unreliable allies. The Protestant electors switched sides three times between 1630 to 35, from the Emperor to Sweden and back again. But Oxenstierna was equally aware that Sweden had been profoundly affected by the death of Gustavus Adolphus, not just in terms of its military position, but also in the diplomatic sphere. The context of the Russian Great Embassy to Sweden is tremendously important, as it contributes to our understanding of the wider European situation. As we've seen, the role of Russia in the early 1630s was critical to the Swedes, a Russian war against Poland would guarantee that King Sigismund would not endanger Sweden while she invaded Germany. Yet, as less known as this whole tangent of the Thirty Years' War is, 
Its second phase is even less well-known, and it began soon after the death of the Swedish king had been learned of in late January 1633. It meant that, potentially, everything both sides had worked for would be undone. The death of the main Swedish sponsor of the Russian alliance meant that it would have to be renegotiated, or at least reinforced by the Russians again. As was customary, though, Russian agents were still required to be respectful towards Gustavus's widow and daughter, who might well be the new agents of Swedish foreign policy. They were required to express their condolences in unambiguous terms, emphasising that King Gustavus Adolphus was killed in battle by the soldiers of the enemy, the emperor, and that against the common foes of our great sovereign, his majesty the Tsar, and his royal majesty, against the heretics of the Roman faith, the papists, and the Jesuits, their wrongdoings and persecutions, and for your faith, his royal majesty stood forth in his valour, firmly and courageously, and won many a victory over them, and in that war for his sovereign nature and his faith, and for all the people in the German states to have justice, he yielded and laid down his royal life. Noble though he had been, the authors of these instructions would certainly have preferred if Gustavus had not laid down his royal life, because the death of the Swedish king changed everything for Russia. In previous months, an understanding had been established that Sweden would make war on Poland in league with Russia, or that at the very least an alliance with Russia against Poland would be formalised. And it was on this understanding that the war had been declared by Moscow against the Poles in autumn 1632, with Russia's major aim being the recapture of Smolensk, a town lost to Poland earlier in the century during Russia's time of troubles. For that reason, this short war between Poland and Russia is often deemed the Smolensk War, and it lasted only until summer 1634, with Russia ultimately failing to achieve its ends. None of this could be known in spring 1633, though, upon learning of Gustavus's death, the Russian agents were instructed to return to Moscow at once, only for these instructions to be modified, to the effect that the Great Embassy became something of a fact-finding mission for Moscow instead. What plans had Gustavus made for the rule of Sweden, for the relationship with Russia, or for the direction of the war in Germany in the event of his death? Furthermore, several worst-case scenarios were conceived of in Moscow, whereby the ultimate fear of a coalition war against Russia, joined by the Emperor, Sweden and Poland, was imagined. What if the weakened Vasa regime in Stockholm was overthrown by one of the Polish king's Vasa sons? What if Vladislav or John Casimir managed to seize the Swedish crown in the name of the Catholic Vasa dynasty and thereafter turn Sweden against Russia? What if Vladislav, the Polish crown prince, managed to then claim the three crowns of Sweden, Poland and Russia all at once? Such nightmarish scenarios could not be ignored by the distant and often uninformed Muscovites. The only way to be sure of their security and avoid another national catastrophe like the Time of Troubles was for Russia to find out for themselves what the future held. The Russian embassy finally arrived in Stockholm on the 4th of June 1633, bringing the more frantic portion of their journey to an end for the moment. In their letters home to Moscow, read by Tsar Michael and his father, the so-called Patriarch, the Russian ambassadors recorded how they were honourably received by their Swedish hosts. They confirmed that Christina, Gustavus's daughter, 
was the heir to the crown and that the Polish king Sigismund III had in fact died. With Sigismund's death, his sons Vladislav and John Casimir would be more concerned with solidifying their position in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth rather than seizing the Swedish crown. And sure enough, confirmation of Vladislav's election as King of Poland is also provided in the correspondence. The year 1633, as we've seen, was mostly uneventful in the military sphere in Germany, thanks largely to the hole that Gustavus's death had left. But as the Russian agents were learning, Gustavus's death had seemed to move the Poles to act as well. They heard alarming reports that an envoy from Poland had previously been in Stockholm to urge Sweden not to break the truce it had signed in 1629. Furthermore, the Russians learned that a new ambassador was on the way to Stockholm from Danzig to make this case once again. It was imperative that the Russians acted first. They tried to find out whether the Polish delegate had made any agreements with the Swedes before, but the Swedish council were cagey and they refused to grant an official audience to the Russians just yet. This was a bad sign, but as the Russians were forced to languish in Stockholm, another envoy, a Swede by the name of Hans Berenson languished in a lonely room of his own in Moscow. Hans Berenson was supposed to be Sweden's answer to the Russian embassy. He was meant to confirm the news of Gustavus's death, of Christina's ascension, and of hopes for the continuation of the Russo-Swedish alliance. Unfortunately for Berenson, though, he had travelled slowly, slower in fact than his courier, who had come bearing the same information and arrived a month earlier. This courier brought with him the news of the Polish approaches to Sweden, which the Russian ambassadors in Stockholm had found so alarming. Unlike those ambassadors, though, the nobility and the Tsar in the Russian capital were empowered to do something about it. So, when Berenson arrived in Moscow in the first week of June 1633, he found Moscow closed to him, and his quarters were bare and bleak. Was he being punished? In fact, he was only being sweated, so that the Russian escort he had been given could find out what he knew. Further complicating the picture in Moscow was the fact that other figures in Sweden had taken it upon themselves to open a correspondence with the Russians outside of the official government channels. One of these figures was the Livonian governor for Sweden's expanding empire, a man by the name of Johann Skitt. Skitt seems to have had ambitions beyond his station, and he negotiated privately with the Tsar's uncle from late 1632 throughout 1633. He even sent his nephew to Moscow to reinforce this correspondence in July 1633, and before that, Skitt sent several letters which provided additional bits and pieces of information on the situation in Europe to the Tsar's regime. Thanks to Skid's letters and the early arrival of the Swedish courier, the unfortunate Berenson discovered that the Tsar was far better informed than he had expected, and the Russians generally were now wholly suspicious of Swedish intentions. Above all, the Russians were angry about the reported visits by the Polish agents to Stockholm, and they wanted clarity on the future of the Swedish-Polish partnership. Now that they had in their hands a man who might be able to shed some light on the overall situation in Germany, the Baltic and the East, it was to be expected that they would, well, hold on to him. Eventually, Berenson was granted an audience by a small circle of Russian nobles. It was true, Berenson said, 
that Polish agents had been in Stockholm, that Vladislav had offered marriage to Queen Christina, and that a truce lasting 10 years between the Poles and Swedes had been floated as well. However, Sweden had refuted these offers. The Swedish council was adamant that not one of the late Sigismund's sons should get anywhere near the Swedish throne, and Polish access to Russia through Swedish-occupied Livonia had been refused as well. Berenson's assurances made some impression upon the Russian nobles, but the Tsar still refused to see him until July, when his letters were taken in a brief audience. The letters Berenson bore with him apologised on behalf of all the magnates in Stockholm for the late official notice of Gustavus's death. The excuse given was that the magnates had been just so grief-stricken that they'd been unable to pen such a letter any earlier. A lame excuse in any event. But the truth was that Swedish policy had been shaken in spring 1633 before writing itself, whereupon Swedish officials determined that the old policy with Russia would be pursued. Within Berenson's letters, indeed, were all the high-minded platitudes one would expect. According to the Swedish authors, Gustavus had died in the fight for the evangelical and the ancient Greek faiths, while the Catholics, led by the emperor and the Polish king, wanted first to conquer the great kingdom of Sweden and then the great possessions and state of your majesty the Tsar and to crush the evangelical and the ancient Greek faiths and to install instead their accursed popish darkness. Yet the Tsar was not entirely convinced that the accursed popish darkness was a fate which Gustavus's martyrdom had saved him from. For one, the tenuous confessional aspects of Gustavus's fight were rejected as it was stated, frankly, that the Swedish king fought for your faith and died for his faith and truth and for all the people of the German states. If they would not countenance the religious undertones of the message, though, then on the 5th of July, 1633, the Tsar and the Patriarch did approve of a letter from their side, which underlined the political importance of Gustavus's career and the Russo-Swedish alliance. It was recognised that Gustavus fought against the common foes of His Majesty the Tsar and of His Royal Majesty, and it was hoped that the regency of Christina would not break with Gustavus's policy, instead enjoying the same firm friendship and love and kindness with exchange of counsel as before. Although the Russo-Swedish relationship was by no means hostile, it was never to realise the high-minded aims which had once been ascribed to it by its advocates, and the reason for this centred upon the Swedish strategic position in 1633, which made any fulfilment of the Russian demands impossible. It was made plain to the ambassadors of the Great Embassy over July and August 1633 that Sweden simply could not afford to make war upon the Poles. The Russians, who, let's not forget, were already at war with Poland since the previous August, made use of the threat that if Sweden did not join Russia in its war, the Tsar would be compelled to make a separate peace with Poland, thus freeing the Poles to make war on Sweden. But this threat was not believed in Stockholm, for the understandable reason that, since the new King Vladislav of Poland still claimed the title of Tsar, it would have been immensely impolitic for the actual Russian Tsar to make peace with such an enemy. Wait two more years when the truce with Poland expired naturally, the Swedish negotiators argued, and Sweden would be willing to join Russia's side in a war against Poland. In the summer of 1633, indeed, it may have appeared to these officials in Stockholm as though the war in Germany was by no means lost, 
Only Nordling in the following September would threaten that prospect, but the offer was still unsatisfactory to the Russian ambassadors, whose great embassy came to an anticlimactic end in late August 1633. As a result of these failed negotiations, though, the Swedish position was left dangerously imperiled, for just at the moment when Nordlingen shattered the Swedish reputation and positions, the Russians did the unthinkable, in Stockholm's opinion at least, and made peace with the Poles. The perceptive Polish king Vladislav reckoned that the cost of abandoning his claim to the Russian throne was worth it for the sake of piling additional pressure upon the Swedes. By May 1635, with the Peace of Prague signed in the Empire and the grand plans for distracting the Poles up in smoke, there could be no guarantee that a vengeful Poland would not make war following the expiration of the Six-Year Truce of Altmark, signed in 1629, which, let's not forget had enabled Gustavus to rampage through the empire in the first place. In Stockholm, this was indeed the fear. Oxenstierna was becoming encumbered with requests from anxious Swedish nobles to abandon the German war and focus on the real threat, the Poles, instead. It seems very likely that Oxenstierna was considering this. The Polish war, he wrote later, is our war. Win or lose, it is our gain or loss. This German war... I do not know what it is, only that we pour our blood here for the sake of reputation and have naught but ingratitude to expect. We must let this German business be left to the Germans, who will be the only people to get any good of it, if there is any, and therefore not spend any more men or money here, but rather, by all means, try to wriggle out of it. This sounds like a Chancellor exhausted with the very idea of continuing on in Germany, and more interested in tackling a conflict which was rooted in Sweden's dynastic interests. Unfortunately for Oxenstierna, events in the midsummer of 1635 made this option impossible for the moment, and it made the Swedish position far more critical than ever before. With the failure of Russo-Swedish negotiations and the end of the Smolensk War and the looming expiration of the Truce of Altmark, Sweden's Polish flank was dangerously exposed, and Oxenstierna could expect a resumption of that war once the truce expired in September 1635. But Oxenstierna had more immediate problems than this. The soldiery, whose pay had been so long in coming, effectively held the Swedish Chancellor prisoner at their camp near Magdeburg in late July 1635. Their grievances revolved around a want of pay, unsurprisingly, and their anxiety over the ability of Sweden to recompense them for it. Such grievances were made all the more pressing because, according to the terms of the Peace of Prague, all Germans were obliged to join the Emperor's side in ridding Germany of the foreign powers. Barely a tenth of the Swedish army was actually Swedish, and most were Germans, now anxious about back pay and conflicted over their duties, since Germany seemed to have turned wholly against the Swede. Oxenstiern would have to do something radical, and likely against his better judgment, to mollify the only weapon Sweden still had, its army. The result was the Powder Barrel Convention, signed in early August 1635, and its effects were considerable. Whereas before, Sweden's war aim consisted of territorial gains or some concept of satisfaction, now the payment of the soldiery was also included within these aims. Should Oxenstierna renege on this agreement 
and should the army not receive its pay, then these soldiers could be expected to rampage across Sweden until the pay was extracted by force. It was, as Geoffrey Parker noted, an appalling prospect, but Oxenstierna had no choice but to agree. He explained, according to the document of the Powder Barrel Convention, the generally dire situation following the Peace of Prague that has divided the evangelical estates and caused such widespread collapse that there is now no human help left than our honourable army. And yet, continued the convention, if our army was also to go, the entire cause would be lost. The soldiery would not only not be content, but each and every cavalier serving in this army could expect all kinds of unpleasantness, even threat to body, life, hour and property, not to mention that only insults and ridicule would reward the Right Honourable Swedish Crown, His Excellency's beloved fatherland, and above all, the blood of its most glorious late king. It was the following paragraph which established the significance of this arrangement. For the first time in this war, the needs and dues of the soldiery were to be included within any consideration of a final peace. It said, The only way, other than God, to prevent this and to try and obtain a good, reputable peace and to provide some satisfaction to the soldiery, as well as the Right Honourable Swedish Crown, was for His Excellency, in other words, Oxenstierna, to be empowered by his beloved fatherland, and for the soldiery to unite and to stand firmly and resolutely together until we die, or God Almighty grants a desirable and honourable peace, either through negotiation or force of arms. Those officers and soldiers who will see this through to the end, should it lead to fighting with the Elector of Saxony, and should this cause them suffering, or, Almighty God forbid, should they be driven in force from Germany, wish to be assured that their loyal service thus far will be rewarded and their pay settled or advised as to whom they should turn to for this. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It was a polite, almost gentlemanly way of phrasing the situation, but Oxenstierna was under no illusions as to what he had just agreed to. The jeopardy for Sweden was now immense. The Chancellor was effectively banking on one of the Swedish generals, pulling another Gustavus, and turning the military-political situation around once again. This, at least, was how it seemed, but in reality, Oxenstierna's plans went deeper than that. Throughout 1635, and especially after the conclusion of the Peace of Prague, the Swedish Chancellor had come to accept that Sweden's succour lay not in the hope of another military victory or in a league of German potentates, but with France. And Sweden was not the only power to cleave closer to its French ally in light of recent events. The conflict in the Netherlands appeared to be reaching a fever pitch with the arrival of the triumphant Cardinal Infant in Brussels early in 1635. Basking in the glow of the recent Habsburg triumph at Nordlingen, this new governor of the Spanish Netherlands arrived with great expectations and ambitions, but he was soon to discover what his aunt and what so many other governors had learned before him, that the task of maintaining this underfunded and hard-pressed appendage of Spain's European empire was a thankless task indeed. Although the citizens of Flanders greeted the arrival of an energetic new governor from the royal family with enthusiasm, it soon became hard to mask the gloom which the vibrancy and ambition of the independent Dutch leadership exuded. Attitudes towards any kind of Netherlandish unity across North and South were also sharpened thanks to the new campaigning season and the failure of previous negotiations, which prompted one Dutch author to compare the situations of the two Netherlands with some venom. If one would speak frankly, one must say, states of full age and free of wardship with states still under age and held in tutelage, in short, free men with slaves. For who lords it over the others? The King of Spain. Who holds them in tutelage? The King of Spain. Whose slaves are they? Ad idem, the King of Spain's. And do you still think it possible to negotiate with these people without first throwing the King of Spain and his Spaniards out of the country? I do not believe it. Nor was this guy the only sceptical observer. Frederick Henry, the Dutch stadtholder, had been emboldened by the French alliance signed in spring 1635, which provided for subsidies in return for a commitment of both sides to maintain an army of at least 30,000 men each. Furthermore, with France's declaration of war on Spain in mid-May, there arrived the potential for true military coordination between the French and Dutch armies, which could squeeze the Spanish Netherlands on both sides. Yet, on the other hand, this ability to coordinate went both ways. It meant that the Spanish could openly collaborate with their imperial allies and draw on a much larger manpower pool in Germany now that the Peace of Prague brought more Germans over to the Emperor's side. Indeed, the Count Duke Olivares was able to announce to the Spanish Council of State with some satisfaction in April 1635 that 
Despite fears that the imperialists view with disquiet the prospect of a joint war against France, our latest dispatches from Germany take the fact of such a war as already accomplished. During the summer of 1635, this process was underway. While the Holy Roman Emperor had yet to officially make war on France, according to Olivares, this open conflict between France and the two Habsburg branches was only a matter of time. Certainly by the autumn of 1635, an army of 40,000 men, comprised of imperial and Spanish veterans from previous campaigns, was under construction. This would certainly give the French a run for their money along the Rhine, and this was only one of many planned strategies for hurting the French along their porous borders. The conclusion of the Peace of Stumsdorf in mid-September 1635 gave Oxenstierna reason to sigh in relief, because it confirmed that Poland would be kept on hold for 20 years. Yet, he'd have to pay a high price. Oxenstierna bemoaned that Sweden had been forced to relinquish its control over the Prussian port tolls, tolls which had brought Sweden incomes that were vital to the continuation of the German war. Through this peace, Oxenstierna had ensured that the emperor would not be able to induce his kin, the Polish king Vladislav IV, to attack Sweden from the east, but the aged emperor Ferdinand II still retained a great preponderance of power over his foes. We're going to look at this preponderance of power in a bit, history friends, but before we do, I just want to remind you that this podcast is, well, it's not really brought to you by anything, but basically, I wrote several historical fiction books in this series called Matchlock, and it's set during the Thirty Years' War, and I'm really happy with it, and the sequel just came out a few weeks ago, so if you like historical fiction, if you like stories set during the Thirty Years' War, if you like a bit of mystery and intrigue thrown in there as well, and if you like to learn while also enjoying yourself, which I'm sure you do because surely that's why you're here, then make sure you check out Matchlock, a Thirty Years' War story. You can find it by clicking on the link in the description below or just searching Matchlock and the Embassy, which is the first book, in Amazon or Google or anywhere else. To be honest, if you just search my name, it'll probably come up. That's what's handy about not being called John Smith or something like that. Anyway, thanks for putting up with these little plugs. They really do help keep the lights on. And I really am so excited for what the future holds for Matchlock. Because writing fiction has always been a dream of mine. Even though, to be honest, sometimes I think I prefer non-fiction. It's probably a mixture of both. But this way I'm realising my dream and I'm writing what I want to write, and you guys are also reading it, and that's just amazing. So, let's continue on with this other thing I wrote, this script for this episode, as we close out the story of the Thirty Years' War. How powerful was Emperor Ferdinand by 1635, though? Well, he possessed an army, technically, of 80,000 Imperial Saxons, thanks to the Peace of Prague, which merged the Catholic League, provided new opportunities for the Habsburgs, and John George of Saxony when he made his defection official and authorised war declared on Sweden in October 1635. And yet the Habsburg army continued to grow. The combination of the late Wallenstein's reform and tactics, the victory at Nordlingen and the terms of the Peace of Prague all had invigorated the imperial army that had been shattered by Breitenfeld. The Swedish military grip on the situation, on the other hand, was withering notably. Sweden had lost at least half of the 55,000 men she had conscripted directly from her homeland in 1632, 
and the ratio of Swedish to German soldiers had only decreased since. This German army could only be kept under Swedish control with promises that were difficult to swallow, such as the aforementioned Powder Barrel Convention, but a firm political military alliance with France, along with subsidies to match, still eluded Oxenstierna by autumn 1635. It was plain that the rescue of the Swedish military position would come from its allies, the French and the Dutch, who could pile pressure on the Imperials and the Spanish. However, by autumn 1635, it was less clear what the future actually held for France. They possessed a great pool of taxation, and French financial capacity had increased dramatically from 57 million livres to 207 million livres between 1632 to 35. Impressive though this was, Richelieu was troubled by a pressing lack of professional soldiers or even experienced commanders to lead them. The Spanish were in no doubt as to who was to blame for the decline of their position, as King Philip IV himself declared that, The greater number of misfortunes which have occurred and continue to occur in my kingdoms and provinces can justly be attributed to the French. Their aim is well known, to procure the diminution of my greatness, discrediting my forces and objectives, as they have always done. Nor were the French ambitions the solely unpalatable export from Paris. One of Olivares's subordinates was under no illusion over who was to blame. Cardinal Richelieu has offered nothing in satisfaction of our complaints, since his method of negotiation is constantly to lie and deceive. To my mind, whatever kind of agreement we may make with the French, whilst the Cardinal remains in their government, it will never be observed. The formidable military resources which the Austrian and Spanish Habsburgs could bring to bear against France marked a new phase in the Thirty Years' War but they're significant for another reason. The failures and near disaster of the first years of France's open involvement in the Thirty Years' War, wrote the historian David Parrott, have always presented an historiographical problem for studies of Richelieu's ministry. While they may present a historiographical problem or something of a puzzle for us to solve now, in 1635 these circumstances combined to produce the greatest crisis in the reign of King Louis XIII, in the career of Cardinal Richelieu, and in the national memory of the French people. For a while, Richelieu had approached the preceding years before the war with a unique blend of diplomatic finesse, financial investment and direct military intervention. The years following 1635 were to prove another challenge altogether. I look forward to covering that story next time, but for now... This has been episode 61 of the 30 Years War series. My name is Zach Twomley, you're a wonderful history friend or patron, and thanks so much for listening in. I really do appreciate it. Make sure you connect with me in all the usual places, on Facebook in our group, or on Twitter at WDF Podcast. But for now, I'm Zach, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.